Hello. Here we go. Hi, everybody. Good evening. Sorry for the late start. Uh, my name is Lauren Rosati. I'm the Assistant Curator of Modern and Contemporary Art here at the National Academy. And on behalf of Director Carmen Brannigan and the entire staff, welcome to the final review panel of the season. This event occurs here in the National Academy School and is organized in partnership with artcritical.com. We are generously supported by the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs. Uh, I encourage you all to see the exhibitions currently on view at the Academy. The paradox of sculpture in the school galleries outside this room combine works by students and faculty with renowned international artists, and that closes tomorrow. Uh, in the museum, uh, don't miss Anders Sorn, Sweden's master painter, which closes Sunday, May 18th. Uh, and also Philip Perlstein, Six Paintings, Six Decades, which closes next Sunday, May 11th. And Philip Perlstein will actually be present for a conversation in the galleries here on Sunday the 11th at 3 p.m. Uh, and also, just so you know, uh, the room around us, uh, the paintings in this room are the result of a one-day workshop with students in the Academy School. 21 students collaboratively produced the paintings on view. Um, another event coming up, we have a drawing class in our uh, beautiful salon gallery on Wednesday evening, May 7th at 6.30, and there's uh, a ticket for reduced admission to the program available uh, in the lobby. So a reminder too that review panels and art talks are now offered free of charge, uh, which is something made possible by the generosity of our members. So if you like what you hear tonight, please consider, as always, becoming a member of the Academy, and we hope to see you again soon. So, Without further ado, for the final review panel of the season, please join me in welcoming tonight's moderator, publisher, and editor of ArtCritical.com, David Cohen. Thank you very much indeed, Laura, and to all the staff here at the National Academy for presenting, hosting this event, coming to the end of its ninth year. Hope to see you all again in the fall for the beginning of our anniversary season. The review panel. Who's here at the review panel for the first time? Anybody? Oh my goodness, excellent. Well, for your benefit and also to freshen the, the memory of our regulars, let me run through the format, which is simplicity itself. We have been, we the panel and some of you, the people, have been to see uh, four current exhibitions here in New York City. And we've also prepared a little video presentation of those exhibitions. We'll see our videos, see the videos of the first two exhibitions, which will be the David Mizell exhibition at Yancey Richardson and the Alan Wexler show um, in, at the Ronald Feldman Gallery in Soho. Uh, the panel will uh, debate the merits and problematics of those two shows. The audience will let off steam and probe the panel if they feel it's necessary with questions. We repeat the exercise and we go off into the lovely spring evening. So that is the review panel. That's how we do business here. My first uh, pleasure uh, is to introduce my guests this evening. Uh, Saul Ostro is a newcomer to the series. Saul is uh, well known to many of us as Curator, independent, free arts curator and critic of long standing. He's also a member of Critical Practices. Practices. Incorporated. 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 <laughs> Practices Incorporated. Um, a cooperative of sorts, I guess. That a corporation. Corporation rather than <laughs> cooperative. 
uh, that um, is in fact a participant in the current Whitney Biennial, which was reviewed uh, at the last review panel. Stephanie Bowman is uh, a critic and a and also works in the commercial side of the art, of the art system, um, something of a rarity among the critical fraternity these days. She is uh, a director at, uh, uh, at um, uh, Jason McCoy Gallery, um, and she is um, a prolific writer. She, her work appears at artcritical.com, among other places. Uh, she's a veteran writer at that site. And uh, she also has been conducting uh, a series of interviews with women artists for several years now, which are collected at stephaniebrumen.com. Mario Navis is a painter, an artist. His paintings and collages are, are exhibited with regularity at Elizabeth Harris Gallery. He's, of course, known to many in the art world for his um, many years of duty uh, as art critic at the New York Observer. And he presently um, is an active blogger, marionavis.com. No, too much art. Too much art. <laughs> too much art. Uh, .com. To T-O-O. Yes. Yes. Well, <laughs> you need to be careful using words like to when you, when you name websites in 2014. Now, some of us are so young that we use the number two. So um, make sure it's the word two and make sure it's uh, too much. And you will get yourself to the critical insights of Mario Navis. But this evening you'll get them and mine um, in the review panel. Um, let me just say a word, please, if I may, not to introduce myself, but about Art Critical, which um, has anniversaries coming up as well. Um, it's a site where you can go and hear podcasts of almost all of the nine years of review panels that we've had, and you can also read uh, copious amounts of criticism by the likes of myself and Stephanie Boomin, among others. Um, you can read, um, for instance, in the current issue, an extract from Phoebe Hoban's new biography of Lucian Freud, and you can read critics, uh, a range of critics, some of whom I see in this room this evening, such as Drew Lowenstein and Chico Greenwald, and maybe someone else who I can't see because I'm going <laughs> blind, but if that's uh, Christina Key, who is a former uh, member of the review panel as well. So ladies and gentlemen, uh, this is your panel. Please welcome us, and then we'll get down to business. Great, so we're going to dim the lights and we're going to see a wonderfully prepared video of our first two exhibitions, Mizell and uh, Wexler. Excellent. Thank you very much also to the young videographers who uh, delighted some of the galleries by arriving on skateboards and did a very <laughs> accomplished and professional job there. Uh, Kuzma and uh, EJC. Excellent. Wonderful. So two exhibitions here. We, we don't need to find the common denominator between them. They are simply among the four shows we've chosen to review this evening. And yet, looking at the video, um, 
a consistency of muted tone, the, the, the black, the, the, the darkness of the Maisel photographs and the earth tones of those works, whose medium will come to consider, um, um, of, of Wetzler. Uh, tricky, interesting mediums in, in the case of both artists, and a little bit of a harrowing sense of the distance between the, the viewer and the remote subject, the motif, um, in, in both artists' works. So starting with Meisel, I think we need to come to grips with medium. What, what is, what is, what, Saul, can I ask you to yeah. maybe fill us in on, um, these are not straightforward photographs. What is no, they're x going they're on? X-rays. They're x-rays. They're x-rays of uh, antiquities. Uh, what we're seeing is the shadows. So it, it, you know, for me, it was this play. For me, it was this play on photography, x-ray as photography, x-ray as the negative. We get these, uh, for me, slightly overly elegant shadows that, you know, uh, and I, you know, my problem with them is it's, at least for me, it wasn't an interesting use of photography or an interesting use of this type of play with the medium in, in that uh, they seemingly could have been anything in terms of what they could have been x-rays of. I couldn't quite get it, an overall narrative from one, from one image to another other than this notion of this is, you know, this is the process. Mm -hmm. that, that's, that's, that's interesting criticism because this is an artist who, in past work, has very often given us a very distinct, strong, um, focused uh, motif in whether it's looking at aerial photographs of Los Angeles or um, uh, photographs of open minds. Um, Stephanie, did you feel uh, a lack of uh, a lack of um, focus uh, with the show, or did you were you Not were you pleased all. by what you were seeing? Not at all. I was very pleased. <laughs> I thought that um, David is working with a very interesting paradox. If you think of X-rays looking at the interior life of you know, usually life beings and photographs documenting the surfaces of beings or objects. There's an interesting divide between these two forms of documenting something. And um, I was astonished to kind of go through the exhibition and feel that there was a sense of humanity coming out of these stone sculptures that are documented in that kind of clear way that David has. And um, I found that inspiring. I thought the exhibition was haunting. And um, that also came from, I think, that sense of a human presence that I felt um, through this documentation. And also in dialogue with this other series that was on display, an older um, body of work, The Library of Dust. I thought that was very interesting. Those color photographs of cans. Yeah, <laughs> yes. uh, copper canisters that um, hold the cremated remains of, um, I think, uh, patients of psychiatric uh, hospitals. And um, those are photographs that have nothing humane about them, and yet they're documenting something um, that is somewhat of a human tragedy. So to have these paradoxes as well, speaking to each other, I thought made for a good installation. Right. So Mario, we have, um, we have a relatively modern technology that has connotations of 
medicine and forensics, and we have uh, artifacts that are ancient. Um, did the did the coming together of those two forces um, uh, was it uh, did it ignite for you? Well, I, I thought the work was certainly beautiful, but I also thought the work was pointless. Right. Yeah. And it, it just something to be clarified. You know, I have the press release in front of me, and the uh, Mizell actually photographed X-rays, existing X-rays right. of these. Uh, I guess they were used for museological research or just to, to have in their archives. And um, I, I'm just struck by when I'm at a lack for words, you always go to the press release, and that's where you get the dirt. <laughs> And Mizell himself says, the ghostly images of these x-rays seem to surpass the potency of the original objects of art. Now, I, I do wonder about that. I haven't been to the Getty Museum. I haven't seen the original uh, sculptures from antiquity. Um, knowing what I do know about sculptures from antiquity from, say, the Metropolitan Museum, I, I kind of doubt that the x-rays, x-rays are certainly fascinating, but I, I, I kind of doubt that they have the same presence as these photos. And the other thing he claims for these works is they connect the contemporary viewer to the art impulse at the core of these ancient works, which I just think is supreme chutzpah on the, on the part of the artist. Um, I, I would think, again, not having seen the original works, that the art impulse would be fairly clear in the original objects. So in kind of, he's just kind of reiterating the, the charms or the majesty of these pieces, and that's why they're certain, certainly fetching. You know, just looking at them right here, um, the, the kind of the ghostly um, quality in them, but I just find them, you know, it's pointless. Well, all art is essentially useless, as Oscar Wilde tells us, so maybe that's um, not necessarily uh, the, the, the nailing indictment it might sound uh, to be, but um, I, I would confess, Stephanie, that um, much as I'd admired Mizell's work in the past, particularly his his, his work on mines, open mines, looking at mm -hmm. the, the scarring of the earth and using aerial photography uh, that goes way beyond the notion of, say, a bird's eye view to be something that where the, the macro and the microscopic and, and the use of the technology of, of his photography was um, not merely impressive in its own right, but inspiring and, and sort of germane to the subject. Here I did feel that uh, and I'm hearing something similar in, in, in Saul and Mario, uh, supremely elegant, but, but why? So could you help us bridge the, the, the gap between mm. the technology used and the effect? Well, I guess I have a more of a uh, poetic take on that um, underlying theme there, but uh, also I think with David, his body of work to me is kind of an ongoing exploration of abstractions. Um, these aerial views are you know, mining sites, for example, and they're abstracted through his viewpoint, an aerial view, and these canisters, again, are an abstraction in itself, and so are these x-rays. So I, I think of him, you know, poetically in one way, but also I think of him as kind of an abstract artist who just is looking to document different forms of abstraction in our daily life. Right, right. But the, the, the abstraction of the open mines, for instance, or the aerial views of Los Angeles, the, the abstraction of those aerial views of Los Angeles, um, uh, and I, I apologize for re referencing bodies of work that are not the I ones under, I mean, under I, view. But I understand what the problem is. I think hmm. for you, all three of you, it probably would have been easier if he would have been the one to do 
or to take the x-ray. No. No, it doesn't matter. Who cares who takes You don't think these x-rays are incredibly beautiful and interesting? I think the x-rays are incredibly beautiful and interesting. I don't think they make interesting photographs. And that's where the problem arises. I, you know, we can, we can, you know, I'm used to looking at photo, I'm looking at, used to looking at x-rays of, of paintings in which you see pentimento, you see changes, you get a whole long history. There's extraordinary amounts of information. I don't get very much information from these. So they don't document anything. You know, there's occasionally an interior crack, you know, or a fissure, but for the most part, they seem to have been picked for their elegance. And that's... Well, I think the elimination of three-dimensional form through this kind of abstraction, through the x-ray abstraction, is very interesting. Photographs are always abstract in that sense. Photographs are an abstraction because they flatten everything. So there's nothing there. In no, that's all I would take issue with that. Because, I mean, uh, we, yeah. we are, our eye has now become trained to read the three-dimensional in a photograph, whereas with the, these photographs of x-rays, there's a purposive, deliberate, um, uh, ethereal sort of flattening going on. I, I don't know. I tend to you know, look at photo photography differently than because I tend to look at it as flat as a compression, mm -hmm. right? How the how the photography uses and manipulates the focal plane, right? Uh, the, the shifts in, in in focus, the shifts in view. Uh, regardless of if it's a street photographer or somebody constructing, you know, like Adam Foos. Hmm. So I'm, I'm very interested in the medium, uh, and that's why I said, you know, the, the only interesting thing here was the substitution of x-ray for the photographic negative, in a way, that, that, no, that notion. But everything else, I think, you know, uh, you know, the humanity, so on and so forth, is, is, is there because they're sentimental in a, in a manner in terms of the type of images that were chosen. Out of the whole range of, you know, I would assume the Getty has an x-ray of every single piece that they own. Here we have this sampling, this sampling, and that's where it becomes interesting for me in terms of the artist, because the, that's where the artist made the decision. And we take a look at the sampling, and it's piss elegant. Mm. Mm. Yeah, to me, it's all about the artist. I actually do have a problem with just taking photos of negatives, because he just seems to be coasting on something that's already there. And I realize this is a established postmodernist trope. <laughs> it doesn't mean it's any good. Um, and I, I did have that issue with, with the work, that there was this sense of remove, and I almost got the feeling that this is a photographer at the end of his rope, or desperate to fill a hole in an exhibition schedule. <laughs> okay. don't, don't feel I have to hold back, Mario. <laughs> yeah. And here I thought I was going to be the expert. <laughs> yes, putting you two on the same panel is, is uh, you know, like uh, dropping uh, two, two nuclear bombs on the same city. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, no, well, the night is young. But Stephanie, <laughs> I, I'm sorry that you're going to have to shoulder the responsibility of, of making Of liking it? Of liking Well, not just of liking it, but you see, I'm on the fence. I'm ready to like it because I've liked his past um, and so I. Yep. And so I'm not understanding, but I'm ready to be convinced. And just saying, it's a, a poetic understanding. I, I need with with the with the aerial views of say Los Angeles, a sense of just 
just to pursue that metaphor, a sense almost of the city having destroyed itself by being so big uh, when seen from such height. There's, there's this correlation between the technology used, the aerial perspective, and the subject and what he's telling us about the subject. Now, with the x-rays, as, as has been suggested by Saul and also by Mario, yeah, why you, you don't get, as in, in a painting, you get the, the, uh, what's underneath, the pentimenti, the evolution of the image. With a sculpture, all you would get is something for a conservationist to know whether this marble is going to hold up or not. So, um, but at the same time, there is a ghostly, inevitably, the X-ray has a ghostly aspect, right? And there's a sense of um, vulnerability in these images, too. And if you think of these stone marble sculptures, most of them, I would assume, as being these kind of very precious, very cold, realistic renditions of human forms mm -hmm. that all of a sudden through these X-rays become somewhat, as I already said, um, yeah, sensitized to human emotions or like in a you know, sensibility that I think is vulnerable. Right. I like the way this kind of work makes me think, because I wouldn't expect to have this kind of emotion looking at, you know, antiquities in that sense, oh. trying to relate it to my time now and to my understanding of humanity. And I also think the installation, mm -hmm. you can look at it atmospherically too, because mm -hmm. you walk into that room and it's so beautifully installed that you're yes. kind of enveloped by these images yes and all these emotions are being brought forward because of it the most positive thing i've i've got from the show was the sense of x-ray having medical connotations and being a 20th century or late 19th century invention right. applied to um applied to effigies of people who lived many many centuries before the invention of that technology, that to me did sort of bring the mundane humanity of the men and women depicted in the uh, ancient sculptures to a, to a kind of contemporaneity. That it, it said, even if it's a, uh, a marble effigy of a Roman or a Greek, that it's, that their, their, their humanness comes out from the fact that they too will have died of something that might have benefited from required X-ray. Mm -hmm. That's the best I can do with it in bridging the, the gap between the, the, the means and the motif. But um, let's, uh, let's move on to Alan Wexler. Let's think about this show um, where we have a different kind of technological layering going on. Um, quite extraordinary, I thought, actually, the, the back and forth between um, sculpture, photography of sculpture, drawing of photography, layering, printing, it's all there, and yet the result, the end result, is this um, quite effete, ethereal surface. Um, Mario, how did you get on with the, the surfaces of these works, and let's, thinking in particular of the uh, two-dimensional works, and the process of their coming into being? Well, the first thing I have to say is, uh, it's thanks to this recommendation, it's the first time I've been in Soho in ages to look at art. It, it must be years since I've been to Soho. I kind of mourned uh, seeing what was happening down there. Um, 
and the thing about Alan Wexler's work, I, I really left the gallery um, ruining the lack of a common culture. I, I just felt these works were, were so private and, and so interiorized that um, I, I had a very hard time uh, uh, not necessarily understanding the work, but, but coming to, it, it just seemed so private and so hermetic that uh, I, I had a hard time connecting to it. The two sculptural pieces I thought were marginally better because they actually got involved um, with the, the dynamics of the material. I, I, the photographic works, um, I, I didn't think were that interesting in terms of surface um, or, or imagery or, or, or how they were kind of cobbled together. Ah, okay, that's, that's interesting because uh, I really did feel the opposite. I mean, because, because the process, I was intrigued by the surfaces. I wanted to know, are these actually photographs or are these drawings or are these paintings? I didn't know at first. And um, watching a video from, on the gallery's website in the, which the artist explained something of his procedure, I uh, was fascinated to learn that he, he makes a sculpture from cardboard. He photographs those um, constructions. He um, then prints out and joins together those photographs. He then reworks those in uh, uh, Photoshop. He then does stuff physically to the surface. He then research photographs. It's, it's, it seems to be a sort of bewildering archaeology of uh, procedures and mechanisms to, to get what's then a very sealed in and enigmatic um, uh, surface. Um, I don't know whether that delighted or in me or not, but it certainly intrigued me. Stephanie, uh, did you find yourself, uh, uh, how did you get on with these objects, with these surfaces? Um, I liked the work. I wasn't so interested in the process, and I think there's maybe a little bit too much process going on. I don't know how potent it is in the end. I think you can derive a similar imagery um, a lot simpler. It reminds me a little bit you know, of work that was done 15 years ago when the first artist started to play around with Photoshop. And now looking back, it looks a little bit um, you know, enthusiastic about a new medium. And now everybody is so good at it. But um, I thought it was a very nice group of work. There was too much work for me in that show. And I would have loved to see more sculpture, too. I was interested in these sculptures. but. Because it was just two and a two huge rooms filled with these large two-dimensional works, it kind of seemed like a tag-on to me. And then I didn't understand why this work from the 70s was added—the kind of archival yes. uh, grouping of uh, twigs—and uh, maybe it should have been more of a retrospect overview of the artist to really bring it all together, or just stick to one thing, but less of it. Um, I was a little bit confused in the end. Right. Saul, clarity for you or confusion? Uh, a little. A little of both. Uh, I know Alan Wexler's work for, I guess, Alan's been working 30, 40 years. Primarily, he's an industrial designer, and he's best when he's an industrial designer. Uh, I found that these works suffered from what happens when a designer sets out to make art. Mm. I, the patina of wax that, that he put onto the surface of them I found totally distracting to, to soften them and, and give them that slightly yellowish finish. Uh, I, were, I was able to imagine if I peeled away that, that, that surface, 
that there was something interesting in terms of how we had reworked them with pencil and graphite, how they were pieced together. I really liked the disruption of the crop marks. They kept calling attention to the, to the fact that these were not single images. Uh, I found you know, certain things and then ultimately walked away going, why did he ruin it like that? Right. Okay. Yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm intrigued. I, that's an interesting, interesting response because I actually found the flat works way more interesting than the sculpture. The yeah, sculpture, so, yeah. uh, to be honest, looked a little bit uh, sort of basic design, um, you know, foundation, foundation year kind of project. I mean, gorgeously put together for sure, but not, um, not riveting as, as sculpture. Whereas the, uh, the images, and the, the the means by which the images were reaching me of the, the two-dimensional works, I can't say I love them, but I, I was certainly, I was in a space that was kind of confounding. I'm, I'm with Stephanie in thinking that less would have been more, but um, the, the sensation of a kind of medieval picturing um, going on and, 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 and um, a, a sense of a kind of, not, not even medieval, but a very early Renaissance sort of, uh, excitement at perspective um, and a kind of sinister coolness to these works. Um, I think in a funny way actually if you put uh, some, some, some Mizels and some Wexlers in the same room they would really, the, the effect would be symbiotic and, and it would, um, we're dealing with the basics of the human form in Mizell of the build, the, 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 the habitat structure in um, uh, in, in Wexler, and so therefore it's perhaps not a, a, such a surprise that he comes out of industrial design because it's, it's his fascination with primitive, um, not primitive, but early technologies of, of building, of excavating, and his desire to, to, to bring together his own process of image making with a sense of the, the anthropology of creating habitats. I, I thought was a, a worthwhile ambition, at least. I would be happy to say that. But, um, well, there's not a lot of room for debate here. We, we either are modestly intrigued by it or fairly, fairly, um, fairly confounded by it. And um, It's interesting what you're saying about all the, the variations of how we tweak these images and mm that kind of process can be intriguing, but it's, I almost felt like he was kind of either escaping from his original impetus and that ultimately became about a nice patina rather than explore, finding a way to explore this kind of these primitive structures, you know, these basic structures. I was reminded of uh, whatever the hole that Saddam Hussein was dragged out of. That's, that, that's what the show put me in mind of. Um, but I, I just wonder if I was wondering what he's running away from with all these tweaks, endless tweaking that doesn't that all, all together comes up with these very kind of bland, beautifully patinaed artworks. Right. The one thing, the other, the other thing that I did like, and this had to do with the imagery, uh, the way it was in a manner a revisit to early earthworks reminded me of people like Alice Acox. Yes. And yes. things like that. And that was also sort of interesting to the point where I, I would have liked to have seen him build one of these. Mm -hmm. 
Yes, there's a sculpture that I pass often on the Pratt campus, which is a, I don't know if any, all of us know that uh, the Pratt Institute in Brooklyn is, is um, a fairly veritable uh, sculpture garden, one of, the, one of the few really good open air displays of open air, <coughs> open air displays of sculpture in, in greater New York City. Um, there's, a, there's an Alan Wexler there, which is a, an intriguing object, kind of ugly, but, uh, but uh, <laughs> a, a chair that's also a desk. Yes, and uh, it's, it's, it's um, a conundrum as much as a solution. Um, but I've, I often stop at it and think, could I use that? Um, uh, rather than stop and have an aesthetic experience with it. And, and so, so hearing the reference to earthworks, that makes total sense. I mean, the, the, the early work from the 70s that uh, Stephanie referenced, those rather irritating corrugated board, um, the, the, those sort of boxes of uh, uh, twigs that rather schematically organized by color and shape to, to make some relationship between um, twigs and I-beams, I think, uh, seemed a little sort of either pedantic or in, in a sort of Mark Dion type territory of, um, wasn't, well, Mark Dion as much later, of course, but it had a kind of very 70s system feel to it. But it seemed to be, I, I could definitely see why it was there, though, because it's, it's saying this guy has been intrigued by layered uh, interrelationship between nature and technology for a long, long time. Okay, good. Thank you. Got that. But it's the it's the, yeah it's the uh, he did he did look like a one man he well he looked like an earthworks artist who instead of going and doing projects in Utah or wherever Michael Heiser does his projects was was doing um, doing them in his studio with and with Photoshop but it was uh, <laughs> like a, a microcosm of what is a movement that had a sort of macrocosmic. Uh, sort of impulse in the first instance. Mm. Does that make sense? Yes, I agree. Right. Mm. Cool. Well, let's see if our audience can um, inspire us with new ways of looking either at David Meisel or Alan Wexler. Please wait for the roving mic to come to you because, as I mentioned at the outset, we record the panel so that others uh, others can hear it. And do do bear in mind that you're being recorded and. That um, <laughs> your voice will carry across uh, timeless uh, as long as people are around, <laughs> tuned into operatical, which I'm sure will be a long time. But anyway, um, yeah, wait for the mic. Thank you. Um, I'm questioning uh, my understanding of x ray, and I spent a lot of years looking at x rays, and I can't make the connection with what you're describing as x-rays. And I'm sure it's uh, my lack of uh, understanding the ability, but I'd like to have you talk about that. I'm not quite sure. I'm not quite sure what the disconnect is. So can you, what kinds of x-rays did you spend your life looking at? Mainly brains, but. Um, <laughs> Yeah, well, that's. <laughs> I, I, I don't see them. I don't see the X. I don't see the characteristics of what I think about when I think X-ray. In right, what the, you, the, these are X-rays that are used uh, when they're solid objects, right? So they're X-rays of solid objects that seek 
to identify whether there's a fracture or a fissure in the stone, things okay. like that. These are so they're not X-rays of bodies, bodies, and that's but of objects. So that's so the shadowing here is hollows and 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 breaks or uh you know uh of or of where or you know so that a conservationist knows okay this is eventually going to fracture along this line right they made by the conservation department i don't know if that was clear Yes, you have free reign of the conservation department at the Getty. But it's, it's uh, certainly, if you're used to, I mean, X-ray can take one deep into something, but not if it's, not if it's a solid lump that you can't go deep into. So it's, um, it's, it's, a, it's kind of the wrong tool uh, to do anything other than the very simple thing that a sculpture conservationist is interested in, or the very poetic thing that David Mizell is interested in. But, but sure, the, uh, yeah. if you actually, yeah. That makes sense. A lot Thanks. more interesting information from an X-ray of a brain. That's, that's for sure. <laughs> and they might have been more interesting. <laughs> yes. Okay. Well, some advice from Mr. Myzel. Um, brain. Yes, there's a lady there. Just about Alan Wexler. You know, his process I think is quite elaborative, but I think part of the rationale behind all the um, the levels that he brings to uh, the work is to mimic the idea of building and to make this archaeology and architecture uh, somewhat of a, a you know a metaphoric conceptual exercise. And I think that's part of why there's so many elements involved. But the hand the handmade and the tactile seem to resonate throughout. Well, throughout, except not at the final surface, because the final surface is kind of sealed in, so um, and then waxed, waxed in almost. So um, that's the, the conundrum I think we have with those of us who quite like it and those of us who don't like it on the panel all have that same sort of conundrum, I think. Well, my problem with wax, I always tell my students that wax is the easy lay of oil painting mediums <laughs> because it, it makes anything look good. So maybe my bias against wax medium has something to do with my response to this work. Yeah. Or, or, or maybe even your ethics of an easy lay. But um, uh, any more comments on, on the, the first two shows we've looked at? Um, good. Well, let's... Uh, yes, the gentleman in the front row. This is a fairly obvious comment, but uh, for a photographer to be interested in, in x-rays seems uh, fairly self-evident. Uh, okay. But for any artist to be interested in anything that doesn't yield anything is not so self-evident. So that's, that's what we're maybe we're probing at more. Uh, but but yes, sure. I mean, uh, how 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 it, how could a sculptor not be interested in clay? How could uh, yeah? But um, just a sculptor usually does more than just bring some clay into the gallery. So so sure, there's a, it's a beginning. But um, but thank you. Yeah. Right. Cool. Okay. Um, so, ladies and gentlemen, let's um, dim the lights and look at the second the video of the second pair of shows, which. I think might might excite more
passion and more debate, but you never know. Two shows uh, marked by their um, near absence of color, uh, the predominance of black or of tone, to, to two shows with uh, uh, considerable exuberance uh, in the, the chromatic uh, department. And uh, we've also gone to, uh, uh, with John Newman uh, to, a, to, a, to an artist uh, where uh, the layering uh, of process and uh, materiality is, um, uh, if not manifest in the work itself, um, uh, made explicit in the um, almost essay-like um, uh, medium descriptions that a, a typical work attracts. Let me just say, give one example, that first work we looked at called Out of the Blue, uh, when you arrive in the gallery, um, uh, a work with a kind of arc and a kind of dripping, drooping sort of uh, blob in the middle and uh, with one of its uh, legs resting on a pink pillow uh, is cast and polished bronze from wooden burl, extruded aluminum, cast aqua resin, wood, wood putty, papier-mâché, foam, Japanese paper, aluminum screening, acrylic paint, and chalk. So uh, a busy fellow, uh, almost coming out of some al alchemist's laboratory, these, these sculptural works. Um, Stephanie, do they transmute base materials, or in fact, not base materials, but rather exotic ones, into something magical? Absolutely. I love John's work. I think he is absolutely original. And there's really no sculptor I can think of who is out there who's doing anything similar. And. Um, I love his use of color. I think it's a wonderful statement against uh, chromophobia. So much of sculpture nowadays is, you know, grayscale or, you know, industrial materials that are kind of left, um, you know, in their original appearance. And um, I think he works a lot with that and also with scale because, of course, sculpture is always, you know, thought of as um, something more monumental. And he makes these kind of smallish, uh, he has called them homespun uh, tabletop <coughs> sculptures. But they're very serious. So there's this first layer of they're colorful, they're, they're small, so they're kind of maybe cute, but they're not. They're very serious contemplations of planes and uh, mathematical concepts mm -hmm. and um, how to balance different uh, components and you know, very distinct, elegant lines. And um, it, it keeps intriguing me. And yeah. knowing his work um, quite well, I thought that this show was um, exceptionally well-conceived, and I like um, to see that he's going a lot towards painting. A lot of these new sculptures have larger surfaces that are um, painted, <coughs> and so there's a little bit of a um, fine divide between sculpture and painting. Yes, in fact, I, I, I always think his peers are more to be found in the world of painting mm -hmm. than they are in, in, in sculpture. I agree. Um, okay. Roberta Smith, in, in a review some years ago, sort of drew a, a, a parallel with Thomas Noskowski, and I see almost a relationship like Miro and Calder between that painter and that sculptor. Um, I, there is, uh, it's interesting you mentioned scale because uh, for, for, for Newman, this is, this may look, they, these may still look like, and in fact literally are, table top sculptures, but 
for Newman, there's almost a trebling or quadrupling of size here. There's, uh, um, these are perhaps going back to something that's much earlier in his career, but they're, uh, for, for Newman, they're monumental. But uh, um, Mario, what do, you, what do you make of the relationship of painting and, 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 and sculptural form in these works? Well, I think it's very adept, and, and I, I must tell you, this is a show I, I could not look at enough. I, I really thought this was a superb exhibition uh, for reasons that Stephanie has already alighted upon. And I, I just think, I walked in the gallery and looked at the work. I'm familiar with John Newman's work over the years. And I, I just thought, you know, this is what contemporary art should look like. This is really rich, encompassing, various work, not only in terms of media, but also in terms of reach, in terms of metaphorical reach. I mean, the works are kind of funny, they're kind of icky, they're kind of sexy. Um, they do have that al alchemical aspect, almost like a mad scientist uh, quality to them. But I, um, if I hadn't had a dinner night that night, I would have stayed at the gallery a little bit longer, because I actually thought this was a, a superb exhibition. Hmm. Saul, are you going to be our dissenting voice on this one? Not quite, but uh, my first impression was that it was Alexander Calder on acid, <laughs> right? Uh, and yes, I very much found that the, in, in a way a relationship between these and, and somebody like Tom Noskowski. Uh, I thought that they were more interesting as paintings than as sculpture, more, sort of as shaped canvas. Uh, I had a little bit of trouble with the scale, I, I think, uh, and this goes all the way back to John's earliest work when he worked large. He's always had a problem with scale. He, he never quite understands sculpture relative to the body, but only to the eye. And we find this in the drawings. The drawings are always incredibly successful in that sense. Uh, but one doesn't get a sense of hand for all you know for all of the production. One doesn't get a sense of hand in these, uh, you know. And I think possibly this goes back to John's interest in technology and, and the early, the earliest sculptures that were fabricated, and that he had great interest in esoteric means of fabrication and materials. And we find that again here. Uh, I think you know. In terms of how they uh, address the eye, they're really interesting. That's that's their forte. Uh, he's, they, they've got a great sense of color. It's not out of the tube color. It's not ready-made color. He really, you know, tried to fit the color to the form, things like that. Uh, some of the drawing in the sculpture doesn't work for me. They don't describe, they, they seem more decorative than descriptive or functional. So he's more I, of a surface guy than a, he's, the more, they're more optical than haptical. Yes, for me, right. despite, you know, despite these sort of Baroque elements that he includes, you know, uh, with all their rippled surfaces and things like that, uh, they, they tend to function much more. Uh, relative to, to, to while well, they function uh, optically rather than in terms of any physical relationship for me. Yeah, I mean, that, that goes back to a, a very modernist debate about sculpture, I think, Saul. The, 
Uh, and and you, you certainly see in the, the literature surrounding, um, say, Anthony Caro's work in the 60s into the 70s, where the issues of the body, is it eyes only, um, it, it, can one have a sort of any kind of sensual and uh, 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 can one get into physically the work? And um, I, I, I think there's, that's a pertinent term of reference, but I, I wonder if we can't let sculpture grow into a space where we don't always have to say, is this relating to the body or not? It's, it's in three dimensions. It's dealing with textures. It's dealing with um, sensations of movement within space. I, I, for my money, those are enough issues that make something sculpture without me having to um, go back to constantly to the notion of the body in relation yeah, to I guess scale. I want the full potential of the thing. Well, I want the full potential <laughs> of everything. I don't, I don't see why. I don't think producing any medium to one debate from one moment in time is giving the full potential. No, no, it's but that's, robbing the full potential. that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that the possibility, and I think this is one of the reasons for the installation, was he knew that they couldn't stand isolated and alone and allow the viewer to walk around them yeah. in that sense. And therefore, we had this big X or T down the middle that really controlled how one could view them. Mm. I disagree. I think it was more to see them kind of floating in space because if you have uh, 20 or 30 sculptures and they all have their own pedestal, it becomes really a cluster of uh, rectangular forms and all you see is kind of a forest of pedestals. Yeah. It was kind of a way and at a height, a height installed to make the work kind of float above you and you were, I thought you were able to see every work from every angle. Well, I was initially skeptical of the installation, yeah. but I, I did feel it afforded. It almost felt like I was going into the studio to his yeah. studio and looking at the work um, on display. Yeah. But you see, I guess I always look at work and think of it, how would it look in a domestic space? So what does this look like on my coffee table? That's my coffee like table's not big works. enough for these what? things. My coffee table's not well, big I, enough I, for these I, things. I have, I have a knockoff of a new Gucci. It would be big enough for... <laughs> <laughs> and, and your coffee table would work well with the average Richard Serra. But it's really <laughs> Um, <laughs> well, what I love about the work is that, talking about a living room situation, yes. it would look like an alien in anybody's apartment. And that's what's so wonderful about it. They're absolutely unique and original, and they don't relate to furniture or, you know, whatever kind of aesthetic phase is going on. Yeah. I, I must um, own up to the fact that I once curated an exhibition of Newman's work um, some, some years ago, and it, I, I, I know that, that curatorially the big issue for me and shared with John was how the hell are we going to get these small things not to be this forest of, uh, of pedestals. And I, I said, uh, we, we, we both know the problem, and if you come up with a solution, that's going to be part of the work itself. And if I come up with a solution, um, it's going to be a curatorial uh, over-intervention. We need to find a third person, a neutral person. And, um, I suggested a, an interior designer. He said, no, he's going to work with an architect. And there's an architect friend of his who came up with a solution that's rather like this one. And I, I must say that when I went into Tibor Denage, um, I actually had a similar reaction to Saul's because it, in the show that I did, the work was a third the size. And it was um, and, and in a very constricted gallery space, the New York Studio School. And, and in that, it was electrifying. It was a fun way to install these works that really let the works 
in their particularity and, and forcing relationships to work. And whereas, whereas in the Tibor show, I think because he's gone so much bigger, it's time for them to, to grow up, as it were, and each get their own plinth. Because um, then, as you say, if they're going to be this size, then they've really got to be commanding in, in the round. In, in and, and, the, and the way to get not the way uh, if the pedestal issue is an issue in, ter in terms of that you put in less sculpture, right? <laughs> or demand that he Tibor get a bigger gallery. Yeah. Uh, yes. Or, or <laughs> exactly. Or take over the gardens of Prague. Yes. There, or you do it in two parts. Yes. Yes. Right. Uh, but Stephanie, you, you, do you feel that the what about the relationships that the um, installation forces between the works. Is that a good or a bad thing? I think that's a good thing. Yeah. Yeah, I do. I think um, the installation gave you enough room to look at each piece individually mm -hmm. at different angles, but also as a group. And um, I always enjoy looking at a body of work that is really coming from a, a concise period. Right. So I thought it was enhancing the installation, absolutely. One thing, Mario, that I, I found, uh, always find really fascinating about Newman is, um, but, but even more so in this show, perhaps because of the larger scales, uh, the larger surfaces that I, I found him dealing with, is he has this great love for um, waste, for um, extrusion. He, 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 once, he was going into some plastics factory at, at one point, or residence factory at some point, on a residency. Um, and seeing all the wonderful things that, that this, these fabricators could potentially do for him. And then he said to them, what's this? And they said, oh, just ignore that. That's the exclusion. That's the, when, you, when we put something through the machine, it just has this crap that comes out the edge of the form, and there's nothing you can do with it. We put it there. Well, of course, to the alchemist, um, <laughs> that's, that's, that's gold. And so he's got this, this extruded material. And yet, it gives it a color. By giving it such intense color, it becomes something um, precious, as if this shape that he didn't really manipulate, he just found, um, has some <coughs> elevated purposiveness to it. That's, and and that, that's, that's what I often carry away. There's, there's a kind of inherent contradiction between <coughs> the intensity of color and the weirdness of form. Well, this is where I think that the hand actually figures into the work. It less has to do with this, the, the hand as, as uh, has it had to do with more like uh, choreography or, or, or uh, well, let's stick with that metaphor, in terms of taking these separate materials and finding some way that they work together, uh, both as, you know, juxtaposing material, but also in terms of I, I don't. I want to say narrative, but that's not quite the right word. And I want to say symbolism, and that's not the quite quite the right word. But it's some weird mix like that. So you have these things balancing, tiptoeing, um, laying down. And I actually found, you know, I, I'm kind of surprised because he uses such various materials and shapes and colors within one piece, and yet they still hold together. Um, so that, that's what I found very strong about the work. So I, was, I liked the extruded stuff. I, I actually asked the folks at Tibor Nanaj if that was paint. And they explained to me what it was, because it has that quality you see in some artists' paintings. 
So um, I, I think that the way he handles these, these various materials and surfaces and relationships is, is really, really quite stunning. The, the goofiness I saw in, in, in Newman's work um, uh, also puts me in mind of cartoons. And, yeah. and, and mm-hmm. uh, there's a sort of Mad Max sort of feel to, no, not Mad Max, uh, Mad, um, uh, Mad Magazine, um, uh, sort of Chicago uh, imagist kind of yeah. vibe and sensibility here. Um, uh, is, is, is there kind of a, a little bit of a, a perennial schoolboy in, in Newman? No, I, uh, no, I think it's, it, it, once again, it goes back to, I think he's a painter, and it goes back to the notion of a sort of eccentric vocabulary of form in terms of somebody trying to escape, you know, a uh, nameable form. And, you know, in the way that abstract painters who engage in sort of biomorphic abstraction need to constantly invent their form, otherwise it becomes too associative, it becomes too <coughs> flat, too legible. legible. Mm-hmm. Right. So I think that, you know, uh, the notion that he constantly tries to reinvent the plane, this wobbly plane, uh, or, or the way he folds the plane, things like that, uh, if it doesn't get goofy, it's too familiar. Right, right. And that's where the personality of the work is. A last question about Newman, the title, um, uh, Stephanie. Um, um, Fong Bui, in a text that's laid out like a poem, so I guess we should call it a poem, uh, that fronts the uh, catalogue, recounts a story with, uh, uh, regarding uh, John Chamberlain telling the young Newman that... Um, fit, that sculpture is all about the fit. Um, is this, and, and he's run with it, it's the title he gives the show. Titles of shows, as with pieces, can sometimes be significant and can often not be. Um, do you feel, are you going to remember this show as being fit? Does it's, it's the word fit uh, give a, a, a new uh, dimension <coughs> to, you, to, to Newman's aesthetic? No, I think it's uh, more of a playful title. I don't think of it really as a thematic through line through this particular body of work. I mean, there's, you can think of um, fitting components together because each work is made of so many different components or, um, you know, also fit in a kind of recreational sense, They're almost like right. these little muscles that are, you know, right. having a lot of power each in, you know, in itself. But, um, or I guess if they are called as on acid, as Saul suggests, <laughs> it could be some sort of um, <laughs> epilepsy <laughs> fit. <as> well. <laughs> psychotic fit. <A> psychotic fit. <laughs> Well, Psychotic Fit might be a good uh, segue to our fourth and last exhibition for you. Uh, the exuberant uh, painterly abstraction of Jackie Sapocio. Uh, found abject apologies from art critical and all other institutions um, for omitting the final vowel from her name in the first printed edition of our postcard, Sapocio. So, Jackie Sococcio, it seemed to me sometimes I was looking at, at, at in, in isolated elements here at um, a sort of redux of the history of abstraction since the 50s or 60s. Um, at other times, I was in no doubt whatsoever that I was looking at a postmodern artist. And if the strange tabular formation at Tibor de Nage um, forced more relationships than we wanted between John Newman's sculptures, uh, the tight fit at uh, the two premises of a Rivington on the Lower East Side really made 
uh, the, the case of do not treat these in the precious way of modernism as isolated masterpieces. This is a process, this is, um, this is uh, something that's about painting as well as being painting. Um, what, did, what did our panel, I want to know, make of the, um, the excess within and the excess of um, the paintings of Jackie Sacoccio? Um, Mario. First thing I thought was, I, I wondered whatever happened to Willie Heeks <laughs> looking at these paintings. A, a very good abstract painter who worked in a, a similar um, mode. A lot of laying the canvas down on the floor, a lot of spilling, a lot of overlay. Um, a very, a, I thought a very good painter. Uh, what's interesting to me about the paintings is when I, this afternoon, I was just kind of reacquainting myself with the work, and I was looking at the pieces online after having seen them at 11 Rivington, is, is this conundrum where I actually think they look better when they're reproduced small than when they're on their large scale. And it'd be impossible, I'm, uh, you know, the paintings that are out there definitely use the scale in order to create the images, but I actually think they work um, I think some compression of surface area would do wonders for these paintings. I, I found them a little too easy. Um, there were certain isolated moments in some of the canvases where she did a little, uh, for lack of a better phrase, fiddling around, where she'd drip this way, drip that way, drip upside down, splash, and then where the drips had crisscrossed, she'd like filled in almost like Mondrian with red, yellow, and uh, whatever, blue um, colors. And that, that I found the most engaging part of these canvases. Um, but I, I, I almost felt they were just a little too, I, I think she lets herself off the hook a little too easily. And then I read the press release. Uh-oh. <laughs> Here we go again. Right. And this is something that just went right over my head when I was at the gallery. But I had no real, uh, idea that these paintings were based on portraits by Chuck Close and Domenico Ghirlandaio. Right. I had no clue. Okay. And if that's, if that's the case, it's been obscured really well. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Close and Ghirlandaio. Um, yes. Did that relationship, was that relationship clear to you from the painting, Saul? Um, and no. uh, do you, uh, did you find her to be um, uh, lazy and fussy, as, as, as Mario was kind of implying, or is there a... Uh... No, I, I, I was hoping there was a bit more irony to them than that. <laughs> right. uh, you know, the installation reminded me somehow of Warhol's uh, shadows, this sort of like one after another after another, this sort of assembly line, repetition, variation, you know, I can do it this way, 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 the modularity of it. And they also reminded me of sort of Lydia Donna's paintings from the 90s in terms of that empty center and all the fuss around the edge. Uh, the few moments that I did take in in terms of considering them uh, was very much here and there, there was an interesting detail. You know, uh, that she had gone back in and touched things up or added a mark and things like that. But uh, they just, you know, 
as I said, I was hoping that they, that someplace in it, we got the idea that this was an appropriation of an appropriation of an appropriation sort of thing where, you know, it's the notion of a Xerox of a Xerox of a Xerox until it gets so far away from it, the original. And now that I know that it's Chuck and Giovandeo, uh, obviously that's what it is. It got so far away from the original that, it, that it, it's just a ghost of something. Uh, the other side of it is, and you know, uh, maybe it's you know my interest in abstract painting. I found that they didn't express anything. They were pictures. They weren't paintings. Yeah, Stephanie, um, would you would you accept that those criticisms, or do, would you have something to say in that? I do. I don't. Um, I mean, I don't have anything in her defense. <laughs> <laughs> bombarded by that installation I couldn't even look at really anything um, the one thing that I thought was interesting was that even before reading up on any of it I did get a sense that there must be some kind of portraiture at the core and I'm not quite sure why that was since you know the human form is completely eliminated and that's interesting but I do not think that the approach to that kind of painting is very original I thought it was all installation I didn't you know, I don't think it uh, did the artist any service. In fact, it kind of, as you guys already said before, it makes it look a little too easy, and I'm sure it's not, but it doesn't do the work service. And, um, yeah. Right, right. Well, I guess in, in, the, in the interests of uh, a, a successful panel event, I would spring into the defense of Daniel Sacocho with uh, a defense that uh, uh, will stir up debate, uh, but um, I'm actually in total agreement with said. <laughs> <laughs> in fact, the, 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 the fact actually that I plead guilty, I didn't, uh, besides spelling her name wrong, I didn't read her press release, uh, but um, I, uh, I've got to admit that portraiture, I mean, I love portraiture, I mean, it's one of my favorite mediums when it's done really well, but I'm sure we've all had the experience of going to some boring provincial gallery where there are just too many, or, or not even a gallery, if we, we, of going to a boardroom or somewhere, uh, <laughs> or, or a, a country house, uh, uh, some country estate, where there's just um, uh, too many ancestors on display and uh, uh, not really much to engage us as paintings, they're just pictures. And yeah, I, I, she's been a closed book to me. I thought with the, the, this panel that Somebody picked her work. Um, I, I thought there was going to be. Um, I, I, she's she has something of a cult following among painters. So I, I thought that um, we would be getting some some intimation of what that is. Perhaps perhaps in our audience we will find what we're missing here um, in relation to Sococcio, and perhaps we'll also find uh, some more robust criticism uh, to, to 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 counteract the the love-in for John Newman. So um, <laughs> let's, let's turn the mic over to the audience uh, for some moments. Um, please wait for the mic. Let's do it in, in um, reverse order. So let's first of all um, address Jackie Sacoccio. Um, would, would somebody like to say something? Uh, has somebody got something to say about Sacoccio that, that we may have to, to add to the discussion? Please. No. Yes. <laughs> um, yes. A witness for the defense. Wait. 
Um, the one thing that I saw in the video is that you missed one of Sococcio's paintings, which was in the far back of 195, which is the big red one that was under the molding, which was the most successful painting of that show, of those large pieces. I agree that the installation was way too tight and crowded out the paintings, and it didn't leave enough breathing room for your eye to drift to the next painting. I think it would have been a much more successful show if it was installed properly and not too crowded. Um, I sort of agree with the appropriation of the appropriation of the appropriation. There was a redundancy to it, which I don't think is the fault of the artist. I think is the fault of the people installing it. Right, right. I, I, I noticed a painting in the back of, uh, on Christie Street, but on the day that I went, it was, uh, which was also the day of the, um, the video being made, uh, there were a whole bunch of other paintings stored in that same area, and the lights were not raised. So I, I assumed, I, I, I thought that had an ambivalent status within the show, um, but, but perhaps on a better day with better light, um, that would have made sense as the, as the culmination, the holy of holies of uh, Sacoccio portrait show. Um, whether it would be a Chuck Close or a Ghirlandaio is another matter. I didn't read the uh, press release. I read it. Innocent. An innocent eye. An innocent eye. Yes. Which I don't have, but. <laughs> <laughs> well. I don't think anybody else in this room does, but yes. Right. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> uh, more, more, more on Sacoccio. Another, um, um, another feeling about Sacoccio. No. Okay. So, um, so then, audience, uh, John Newman. Um, what do we feel? Yes. Hi, I'm a dealer on the West Coast, so I don't know Newman or. Um, uh, Lewis, I guess it's Lewis, uh, Lewis's son, um, who did the, uh, in the first, the first one. Um, let me see, I have it written down. Myzel. Yeah, Myzel. Are these, are either of these, uh, we have a, a, we have an artist in uh, Los Angeles, Peter Shire, whose work is very much like Newman's. His brother has, Billy Shire, has a gallery out there. I just wonder, is Newman related to Barnett or any earlier Newman's, or mm, is uh, uh, Myzel? New, new Newman. <laughs> <laughs> And what about Mizell? Is he Lewis's son? Uh, uh, no, I don't believe so. David Mizell lives in the Bay Area, and is, uh, so you should know him. He's a Californian, and he's, he's got a big reputation now um, there and, and here. But I do not believe he's... I may be wrong. Thank I, you. I, I from not, New York. Is he related to Louis Mizell, the, the, the dealer in real estate? I don't think they're spelled the same. It's not even spelled yeah. spelled differently. Yeah. Sorry. Spelled differently, which is a fairly... Significant clue. Okay, right. Unless he's trying to live it down. Yeah. <laughs> um, this might be a bit specific, but uh, with the Newman show, did you feel that the very first piece with the big drip had somewhat of a distinct feel amongst like all of the work, or? No, that's so? a very that's a great question. Did it did it have a distinct feel, and that's why it was isolated, or did it? have a distinct memory because it was isolated. So in other words, is the work different or is it just an, an indication of how the, the show could perhaps have been better installed? Although in fact, it was against the wall. So even the one piece that was isolated couldn't be seen, 
completely around. And it was a different scale. Yeah, a, a little larger, scale. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. even larger. Yes, yes. All right. Yeah. Um, please wait for the mic. And it was much more pictorial. Uh, I actually had a problem with uh, John's installation, not with the cross, because I liked the way they were placed like that, rather than on pedestals, but I was so aware of all the A, uh, what do you call the, the um, uh, horses, underneath. what do you call those? Sawhorses Saw 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 underneath, that I just found that visually very distracting. And I'm, I don't know if it would have been better if it had been a solid X, maybe. Maybe that would have been overwhelming, too. I'm, I'm not sure how that could have been solved, because probably I'm imagining that those sculptures are pretty heavy. So um, short of constructing some sort of metal, I, I, I don't know. But I, I just found that that was problematic for me. Yes, gentleman behind you. I will um, make a comment about John as well. Uh, I'd like to challenge uh, Saul on the um, idea that they don't have a relationship to the body. The hand is part of the body, and these pieces are all about the hand, all about the artist working. Um, and some of the things about John's work, and I'd like to reference the Sandy show, uh, where he had a large table and, and placed the uh, pieces. The dialogue between these pieces became more important than the singularity. And as soon as you put them on a, uh, on a, um, a pedestal, they become singular. Um, and I, I, I would challenge that. Um, also, um, as soon as you put them on a pedestal, I'm sure everybody on that panel would call them a modernist. And, um, and I, would, I would challenge that too. So it's a real complicated issue about how do you present this scale sculpture um, in a gallery, how do you do it? And um, the Sandy Show was a good example, big table, half a dozen pieces on it. This was another example of it. Other shows that we've seen of John's, you know, around the room or a large table in the middle. And the dialogue between them becomes very important. See, I, I guess I'm always suspect when the artist curates their own show and, and wants to determine what you see against what and doesn't allow you to wander from one piece to the other at your own pace and, and cross the room back to something and remember it and, and so on. Uh, the other, the other response I have is I don't think these things have anything to do with the hand and that's one of the reasons I said it doesn't have a scale to the body. It's not, it doesn't have a relationship to the body. They're in a funny way industrial in, their, in, a, in, in a way. They're eccentric, goofy forms, but still they have a sort of industrial quality to them. And that doesn't come from the sense of a hand or, or, or anything else, and definitely not a relationship for me to the body. Uh, they're, they're a certain type of object. And while objects sometimes have a relationship to the body, other times objects don't. And, and in this case, I didn't think that they did. Right, right. The behind you. Thank you. It's interesting that you didn't mention the backing show of that, the Kathy Butterly show, which was sort of interesting when I walked into the room because I saw the Kathy Butterly show, and then I saw the John Newman show. And the dichotomy was really shocking and interesting. I mean, you had Butterly with these wonderful porcelain forms and designs, and 
Again, here's another artist who displays the work on a large pedestal with a large grouping of work. And I'm surprised that you didn't pick up on that or had seen the show before because it's, his impact was even greater after that show that I saw at Butterley's. Because here, as, as, I, as I said, he was Looney Tunes compared to Butterley's work, which was more subtle and softer, but beautiful as well. And, and both of them, artists, are bending the plane, are pitching the plane in different ways. Newman is a little rougher in some way than Butterley. She's more softer. And it was quite interesting to see those two, two shows back to back. Um, and it's interesting because I thought of Ken Price immediately when I saw this work, too, um, which is something that you guys didn't mention also. Uh, I mean, I guess maybe I just have, like, you know, an index that's, you know, larger. And so <laughs> <laughs> Visual index. Well, it's a, it's a, it's a, I mean, that's, I think that's, I think that's your job is to have that index. I mean, you did mention the Skowski, which is key, too, which was interesting. Well, we've got one out of three. That's a, that's yeah, very good. Yeah. That's very good day. I did think of the price, but I, you're right, I didn't say it. And, but well, actually, it's, it's, it's a different venue. I mean, it's the same venue, but at a different time, and we're reviewing his show. I mean, but it is a good call. It's, it's a like all about name dropping. But um, <laughs> I think what's interesting is that we're thinking so much you know, about color when looking at John's work, but where Butterly and Price are different is that they're working with ceramics, and, and uh, a vibrant palette is much more accepted with uh, sculpture when the root is ceramics, whereas he, uh, using industrial materials, color is a lot more radical. Right, although it is applied color. Color, yes. This is applied color. It's not in, not always. Sometimes it is, but it's not always intrinsic to the material that he's he's found. I think Newman is better than Ken Price. And I think the distinction is. I have always found Ken Price's work to remind me of taxidermy. <laughs> and I don't get that feeling with Newman's work, which is very animated. And so I, I, I found much more pleasure in Newman's work. Right. Okay. Thank you. Uh, Another comment? Retrieve the mic. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Um, yes. Gentleman in the front row. As far as the Newman installation is concerned, um, I would like to have seen the sculptures uh, hanging from the ceiling and uh, throughout the space. They seem to lose a lot by just being on the surface, uh, uh, sitting on a surface, and all of them on the same surface. Uh, each one seemed to be very different, and the capacity to see them from different height, if they could up, they wouldn't all have to be hung at the same height. I could see like a whole space full of these uh, figures that way. Right, well that would certainly complete the metaphor of Calder on acid, if they were. <laughs> <laughs> Ceiling, but that's, <laughs> we should certainly relay that to uh, Newman and uh, yeah, that or back to Steve Keister <laughs> and Newman and uh, and to the uh, directors of Tibor as uh, definitely uh, an innovation uh, in 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 this play. But uh, I, I I I take I thank you for the point because it is about about finding a way to experience this these otherworldly forms. 
Great. Well, ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much for your spirited for the 10th anniversary uh, event on, uh, in September. Bye. <laughs> David, is there a question? Susan's not coming. Sorry?